Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 19, Good Wigs. Congressman Abraham Lincoln began his day with breakfast and newspapers at Anna Spriggs Boarding House, located across the street from the U.S. Capitol. He then walked toward the house in a flat-footed gait, reflecting his youth spent behind a plow. In the Capitol, he stopped at the House Post Office to pick up his mail, often lingering in a chair near a fireplace, exchanging stories with legislators and other people present. At Desk 188, near the back of the chamber, Lincoln drafted bills and answered his correspondence before the House gaveled in at noon. The chamber usually stayed in session until mid-afternoon. Democrats and Whigs met in party caucuses in the evening, and Lincoln would often return to the boarding house with work still to do. By the spring of 1848, Mary had taken their boys Bob and Eddie back to their family's home in Kentucky, and Lincoln was usually alone. If he had no work, Lincoln joined boarders and other congressmen for a round of bowling in a nearby alley, a literal alley between two buildings. Samuel Busey, a 19-year-old who lived at Spriggs Boarding House, remembered Lincoln being an enthusiastic, if awkward, bowler. The real attraction for Lincoln was the audience that gathered for the contest. Busey said, quote, When in the alley, surrounded by a crowd of eager listeners, he indulged with great freedom in the sport of narrative, some of which were very broad, meaning blue. His witticisms seemed for the most part to be impromptu, but he always told anecdotes and jokes as if he wished to convey the impression that he had heard them from someone. But they appeared very many times as if they had been made for the immediate occasion. Lincoln enjoyed his time in Congress and took his duties seriously. Of 456 recorded votes during his time in the House, Lincoln missed only 13, including a motion to consider statehood for Wisconsin, which, to be fair, more than 90 other congressmen missed as well. Lincoln worked hard on his two committees, post offices and post roads, and war expenditures. He kept up with his correspondence, often reminding office seekers that a Whig congressman had little pull with the Democratic president who controlled patronage. His time in Congress was limited, and so was his influence. He promised to serve a single term. He was the only Whig congressman from a solidly Democratic state, and by the fall of 1848, Lincoln knew he would be succeeded by a member of the opposing party. He tried to stand out by labeling himself the Lone Star of Illinois, an allusion to Henry Clay's nickname as the Star of the West, but it didn't stick. Lincoln could not expect a long congressional career, and he had scaled the modest heights offered to a Whig politician in Illinois. So Lincoln spent much of his term focused outside his home state and on another branch of government, the presidency. Early in his term, Lincoln joined a group of Whig congressmen known as the Young Indians, most of whom were from the Midwest and the South. These legislators generally came from states like Illinois, where the Whigs had fallen into minority status and faced long-term threats to their survival. One Illinois legislator, frustrated with the lack of opportunities for the Whigs, 
left behind politics with this, quote, There is precious little use for any Whig in Illinois to be wasting his time and efforts. The state cannot be redeemed. I should as leave think of seeing one rise from the dead. But the young Indians thought that a Whig without strong ties to the party platform could succeed. And even those outside the group felt they needed someone who could appeal to the rural voters who had no interest in the Whig's commercial platform. Their man was Zachary Taylor, the hero of Buena Vista, a general celebrated throughout the country, and most importantly, an outsider with no paper trail. Whigs thought he could draw Democratic votes, and most were frank in their reasons for supporting him. Truman Smith, a Connecticut congressman who served as an informal national chairman for the Whigs, wrote, quote, We are a minority party and cannot succeed unless we have a candidate who can command more votes than the party can give him. Lincoln himself believed Taylor could breathe life into the Whigs in his state. Writing to Thomas Flournoy, a Whig congressman from Virginia, Lincoln said of Taylor, quote, His being our candidate would certainly give us one additional member of Congress, if not more, and probably would give us the electoral vote of the state. That with him, we can, in that state, make great inroads among the rank and file of Democrats, to my mind, is certain. One of Lincoln's enemies later claimed that Lincoln said to a group of Illinois Whigs in August of 1847, quote, The Whig Party had fought long enough for principle, and should change its motto to success. This tension would define 1848 for the Whigs. Long relegated to also-ran status outside New England and the Mid-Atlantic, the party had to decide whether it would be better to stick with foundational principles that did not command popular majorities, or risk the party's identity with new names and ideas that could prove more successful. Just eight days after arriving in Washington in December 1847, Lincoln wrote to Richard Yates, a political ally, that there were, quote, a great many Whigs who do not wish to go for Taylor, and some of whom I fear cannot be brought to do it. There are still many others of them who are strong for him, among who I class Mr. Crittenden, although he does not expressly say so. Crittenden was John Crittenden, a Kentucky senator and longtime ally of Henry Clay, who had decided to back Taylor. Clay was angling for the nomination, and he still commanded the fierce loyalty of many Whigs who revered Harry of the West. But Lincoln, like other young Indians, was impatient for success. He respected Clay, but his personal ardor for the Sage of Ashland may have cooled by this point. Usher Linder reported that Lincoln had visited Clay at Ashland in late 1847, while he and his family were visiting Kentucky. Lincoln apparently left a little disillusioned, finding Clay polite, but haughty and overbearing. Linder said of Clay, quote, While he was apparently kind, it was in that magnificent and patronizing way which made a sensitive man uncomfortable. In April, Lincoln wrote that Taylor was the, quote, only chance Whigs had to win, implying that Clay, his political hero, could not beat any of the likely Democratic nominees for the presidency. Lincoln wrote to Jesse Lynch, quote, I go for him, not because I think he would make a better president than Clay, but because I think he would make a better one than Polk or Cass 
or Buchanan, or any such creatures, one of whom is sure to be elevated, if he is not. But Lincoln remained committed to Whig principles. That wasn't true of Taylor's other supporters. Southern Whigs, like Flournoy, increasingly saw the Whig name as toxic and had no commitment to the party's gospel. They simply wanted to win office and trusted that Taylor could do it. Alexander Stevens, a Whig congressman from Georgia who became a close ally of Lincoln, and later vice president of the Confederacy, was trying to win a U.S. Senate seat. Northern supporters of Taylor, like Lincoln, could overlook this if it meant getting the Whigs back in control of the White House and the patronage that could strengthen the party. But other Whigs objected to Taylor. Like most generals, Taylor belonged to their party, but only in a nominal sense. He had never been involved in Whig activity. He had never even voted. In private correspondence, Taylor said the Bank of the United States, a sacred cause for Northern Whigs, was, quote, dead and will not be revived in my lifetime. He sounded dubious about a protective tariff. If supporters felt that Taylor appealed to Democrats who would not otherwise consider voting for a Whig, opponents feared that they would be getting another John Tyler, who would first wreck the Whig agenda and then the party itself. Taylor was a hard man to read. He was a son of privilege who had an oddly disproportionate body, with a big head and torso carried by short legs. In the field, he rode among his soldiers in a straw hat, baggy pants, and a coat that did not reflect his rank. He took advantage of long leaves granted by the antebellum U.S. Army to keep an eye on his plantations, where the backbreaking toil of more than 100 enslaved people kept his family in comfort. Taylor served credibly in the War of 1812 and the Second Seminole War, but he received few promotions before victories in the Mexican-American War brought him fame. As Taylor's most recent biographer, John Eisenhower, wrote, Taylor's informal style masked the heart of a martinet, who simmered with anger at an army that had been slow to recognize his talents. Eisenhower calls Taylor an enigma, writing, quote, Taylor actually lived two lives. In one life, he was born to privilege, a civilian planter, in which pursuit he was uniformly successful. He was blessed with a happy home life. Taylor's military career, however, was a different story. Until the Mexican War made him a national hero, it was disappointing. His journey from major to colonel with a brevet rank of brigadier general was long and arduous. The contrast between Taylor's two lives, civilian and military, doubtless had an effect on him. He seemed suspicious of his fellows who shared his life's calling. The general's motives for entering politics after a lifetime of indifference are unknown. Historians traditionally presented Taylor as a cat's paw for more experienced operatives. But Michael Holt, probably the foremost historian on the Whig Party, says Taylor was savvier than he's often given credit for. In the early part of the Taylor boom, the general continually stressed his desire to be a nonpartisan candidate, a new Washington who would rise above machine politics. That stand played well with Whigs, who were always uneasy with party organization. Holt writes, quote, 
What people learned of Taylor from newspaper accounts made him appear a perfect choice. He was unpretentious, plain-spoken, and plain-dressed, courageous, and unflappable in the face of the enemy. Taylor thus seemed to embody the virtue and genius of the mythical Republican citizen who, in time of crisis, heroically sprang to the defense of his country. Most Whigs, of course, viewed their party and their ideas as the best defense for the country and did not appreciate how the Taylor Brigade cast their beliefs aside. To mollify them, Lincoln and other supporters urged Taylor to stress his commitment to the Whigs' core belief in congressional supremacy. This would allow Taylor to maintain his silence on Whig policies while leaving the door open to a Whig Congress to enact them. In notes written that March, Lincoln put down a series of statements about what Taylor ought to say. Lincoln wrote, quote, The question of a national bank is at rest. Were I president, I should not urge its reagitation upon Congress. But, should Congress see fit to pass an act to establish such an institution, I should not arrest it by the veto, unless I should consider it subject to some constitutional objection, from which I believe the two former banks to have been free. Meanwhile, Henry Clay fought on. In April, he formally announced his candidacy for president, a highly unusual move in an era where the pretense of the office seeking the man still held power over voters. But Taylor enjoyed the solid support of Southern Whigs and Whigs from Northern Democratic states at the convention in Philadelphia that June. He won the nomination. But the discomfort with Taylor remained. Northern Whigs were becoming cognizant of the appeal that anti-slavery politics had for voters, and a slaveholder like Taylor was not an ideal vessel for that message. Horace Greeley, the editor of the influential New York Tribune, wrote, quote, If we nominate Taylor, we may elect him, but we destroy the Whig Party. The offset to abolitionism will ruin us. After the Whigs nominated Taylor at the convention, Henry Wilson, a delegate from Massachusetts, rose and announced, quote, We have nominated a gentleman who is anything but a Whig, and, sir, I will go home, and so help me God, I will do all I can to defeat the election of that candidate. The Democrats, though, faced their own divisions. On paper, the party should have been formidable in 1848. The economy was vibrant in the early part of the year, and the invasion of Mexico had extended the United States to the Pacific Ocean. But the war was highly unpopular in the North, and on domestic matters, President James Polk made a series of blunders. In 1846, he vetoed a Rivers and Harbors Bill popular with both Whigs and Northern Democrats. Polk had also exacerbated a split among New York Democrats by naming former Governor William Marcy his Secretary of War and steering all patronage his way, giving nothing to a faction loyal to former President Martin Van Buren. The Democrats' nominee also failed to inspire the party faithful. Lewis Cass's resume was impressive. He had served as a general during the War of 1812 and had been a long-serving governor of the Michigan Territory, as well as Secretary of War, ambassador to France, and a U.S. senator. 
Yet Cass had never managed to distinguish himself. Tall and fat, Cass was singularly uncharismatic. One journalist called him, quote, a dull, phlegmatic, lymphatic, lazy man. Cass had helped create the Trail of Tears, and he faced credible charges of corruption. Sidney Blumenthal writes of Cass, quote, Politically awkward, intellectually pretentious, and not clever, he never quite grasped the mechanics of the new party politics. Yet his career was regularly promoted through his usefulness to the dominant Southern Democrats. As a senator, Cass served as Polk's floor leader and tried to hold Northern and Southern Democrats together on slavery with something he called squatter sovereignty, which said the white people of a territory ought to decide the legality of slavery. Stephen Douglas and other Northern Democrats later rebranded this as popular sovereignty, an idea that would prove poisonous to the Democrats and the nation. The divisions in the two major parties opened the door for a third party that year. In August, Henry Wilson and other anti-slavery Whigs, known as Conscience Whigs, fused with anti-slavery Democrats, Van Buren's New York Democrats, and most of what remained of the Liberty Party to form the Free Soil Party. Heterodox in creation, awkward in execution, the Free Soil Party demanded a ban on slavery in the territories. But unlike the Liberty Party, it made no commitment to African-American citizenship. Some individual free soilers kept the faith on civil rights and would fight on the issue. But the party itself was indifferent. On economic matters, it supported internal improvements, but otherwise backed democratic small government ideas that had little appeal to the Whigs most inclined to support the free soilers. And the party almost immediately shot itself in the foot by giving its nomination to Martin Van Buren. As historian Daniel Walker Howe notes, the former president accepted the nomination out of loyalty to his tribe of New York Democrats. He was an inventor and master of the machine politics that Whigs despised. As president, he saw the country plunge into depression and responded by contracting the money supply. Most importantly, Van Buren had almost no anti-slavery record to speak of. In later years, he supported democratic efforts to extend slavery. Nominating Van Buren was akin to a third party formed to fight climate change, nominating a Koch brother for president. As Holt writes, quote, Inventor and devious manipulator of machine politics, proponent of the negative state, and repeated conciliator of slaveholders, Van Buren epitomized what Northern Whigs hated most about Democrats. To place him at the head of an anti-slavery party struck them as hypocritical, if not ludicrous. For his part, Lincoln remained devoted to Taylor and threw himself into the campaign. On July 27, 1848, he delivered a lengthy speech in the House for the general. It was an eclectic mix of policy arguments, and Lewis Cass so fat jokes, part of a general round of partisan presidential addresses delivered in the waning days of the session. Two weeks after Lincoln's address, Polk fumed in his diary that this was, quote, a great outrage, and they should be held to strict account by their constituents for their wanton waste of the public time and disregard of the public interest. In his speech, 
Lincoln first boosted Taylor's Whig credentials, saying he would do whatever Congress wanted. Quote, the people say to General Taylor, if you are elected, shall we have a national bank? He answers, your will, gentlemen, not mine. What about the tariff? Say yourselves. Shall our rivers and harbors be improved? Just as you please. If you desire a bank, an alteration of the tariff, internal improvements, any or all, I will not hinder you. If you do not desire them, I will not attempt to force them upon you. Lincoln attacked Cass as pro-slavery, pro-expansion, and anti-development, noting he had largely acquiesced in Polk's policies on those matters. Lincoln said Cass's election would lead to, quote, new wars, new acquisitions of territory, and still further extensions of slavery. Likely drawing from records he could acquire as a member of the Committee on War Expenditures, Lincoln also accused Cass of leading, quote, charges upon the public treasury, noting he held multiple federal jobs in different regions of the country at the same time. Lincoln said, quote, From October 1821 to May 1822, he ate 10 rations a day in Michigan, 10 rations a day here in Washington, and near $5 worth a day on the road between the two places. This allowed Lincoln to pivot to fat jokes. He said, quote, Mr. Speaker, we have all heard of the animal standing in doubt between two stacks of hay and starving to death. The like of that would never happen to General Cass. Place the stacks a thousand miles apart, he would stand stock still midway between them and eat them both at once. And the green grass along the line would be apt to suffer some too at the same time. The representatives were roaring with laughter through the last half hour of Lincoln's speech when he began roaming the House, possibly in an attempt to make himself better heard amid the poor acoustics of the chamber. The Baltimore American, a Whig newspaper, said, quote, He would commence a point in his speech far up one of the aisles and keep on talking, gesticulating, and walking until he would find himself at the end of a paragraph, down in the center of the area in front of the clerk's desk. He would then go back and take another head and work down again. Before returning to Springfield that fall, Lincoln was summoned to Massachusetts to try to heal a breach among Whigs in the Bay State, normally a stronghold for the party. The problems started with Taylor, who was trying to distance himself from the party that nominated him. He delayed sending a letter of acceptance of his nomination for nearly a month, apparently because he didn't want to pay postage for letters received. In July, he sent another well-publicized letter where he said he, quote, cannot be president of a party, but the president of the whole people. And in August, Taylor accepted an irregular nomination of independence in South Carolina, known as the home of the most extreme pro-slavery ideas. Whig voters became disheartened, and the party did poorly in August congressional elections. The Massachusetts Whigs were split between conscience Whigs and cotton Whigs, conservatives who were loyal to Taylor. Taylor's summertime moves only heightened conscience Whig distrust of the Whig presidential nominee. And in protest of cotton Whig domination of the state party, all but two of Massachusetts' 10-member House delegation declined to seek re-election. 
there were real fears that the Free Soilers could take conscience Whig votes in the state elections. That could have ramifications for the presidential contest. Under Massachusetts law, if no presidential candidate got a majority of the state popular vote for president, the state legislature would decide where Massachusetts' 12 electoral votes would go. Lincoln arrived in Worcester on September 12th to speak to Whigs before the party's state convention. He was the only speaker announced, and he appeared nervous at first. Henry Gardner, who saw the speech, later said, quote, When he was announced, his tall, angular, bent form and his manifest awkwardness and low tone of voice promised nothing interesting. But he soon warmed to his work. Lincoln focused on the Free Soil Party, warning that abandoning the Whigs meant a repeat of 1844 and the victory of a real pro-slavery candidate. As a local newspaper reported, quote, Mr. L. believed that the self-named Free Soil Party was far behind the Whigs. Both parties opposed the extension. As he understood, the new party had no principle except this opposition. If their platform held any other, it was such in a general way that it was like the pair of pantaloons the Yankee peddler offered for sale, large enough for any man, small enough for any body. They therefore had taken a position calculated to break down their single important declared object. As Lincoln spoke, he rolled up his sleeves and threw in more stories and anecdotes, stalking the stage in a manner that was novel for Massachusetts audiences. He would use his hands to make points and at times bend his knees and leap up when he really wanted to bring an issue home. Lincoln's use of jokes and anecdotes was also new for the Eastern crowds, used to more formal speechifying. As Gardner wrote, quote, His style and manner of speaking were novelties in the East. He repeated anecdotes, told stories admirable in tenor and in point, interspersed with bursts of true eloquence which constantly brought down the House. His sarcasm of Cass, Van Buren, and the Democratic Party was inimitable, and whenever he attempted to stop, the shouts of, Go on! Go on! were deafening. The speech was not a complete success. At one point, Lincoln made a reference to abolitionists in Massachusetts, and said, quote, We have a few in Illinois, and we shot one the other day. Many in the crowd viewed this as a tasteless allusion to the death of Elijah Lovejoy, and it was treated as such in the Free Soil Press. Lincoln quickly dropped the line. But he continued to repeat some variation of the Wooster speech in Boston, Dedham, and Dorchester, becoming a hit with Whig audiences in his 10-day swing. Governor Levi Lincoln, who was a distant relative of Abraham's, invited him to dinner. Gardner, who would later become a Bay State governor, remembered that the two Lincolns joked with each other about their possible kinship, which ended with Abraham saying, quote, I hope we both belong, as the Scotch say, to the same clan. But I know one thing, and that is that we are both good Whigs. Toward the end of his swing through Massachusetts, Lincoln shared a stage with former New York Governor William Seward. Short, with a raspy voice and hair gradually lightening from red to brown and gray, Seward would play a leading role in Lincoln's presidential administration. But in 1848, he had already had a memorable career. 
Seward matched a good sense for political strategy with high-minded idealism. His home was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and he provided financial support to Frederick Douglass and, later, Harriet Tubman, who lived on land donated by Seward. As Sidney Blumenthal writes, Seward was, quote, a rare case combining radicalism and partisanship, reform and ruthlessness. He achieved his ends, virtuous and otherwise, usually through cunning means. Along with his political partner, newspaper editor Thurlow Weed, Seward had built the Whig Party in New York into a formidable organization, doing a great deal to advance Whig economic principles in the Empire State. Seward was no public speaker. His already unpleasant voice was helped little by the dull monotone in which he delivered his speeches, meant more to be read than heard. But Seward and Weed recognized the growing attraction of anti-slavery politics to Northern voters, and he pushed the Whigs to embrace them. Sharing the stage with Lincoln in Boston, Seward said, quote, All Whigs agree that slavery shall not be extended into any territory now free, and they are doubtless willing to go one step further, that it shall be abolished where it now exists under the immediate protection of the general government. In other words, Seward was saying that the Whigs would fight to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. Edward Pierce, an active Whig who witnessed Seward and Lincoln speak in Boston, later claimed that Seward's speech pushed Lincoln toward a more aggressive anti-slavery stance. Pierce said Lincoln told Seward after the speech, quote, We have got to deal with this slavery question and got to give much more attention to it hereafter than we have been doing. Whether or not this actually occurred, Lincoln would take a significant step in that direction when Congress reconvened later that year. Lincoln's swing through Massachusetts, combined with new statements from Taylor that made him sound more like a Whig, helped significantly. Massachusetts Whigs declared the state safe for Taylor by the end of September. Edward Pierce later wrote that Lincoln made a marked impression on Massachusetts audiences with his physical appearance, his humor, and his, quote, novel way of putting things. But Pierce added, quote, Still, so far as his points are given in the public journals, he did not rise at any time above partisanship. And he gave no sign of the great future which awaited him, as a political antagonist, a master of language, and a leader of men. In November, Taylor won election thanks to the Whigs swinging New York and Pennsylvania back into their column. As his backers expected, Taylor proved strong in traditional Democratic states. He managed to carry Georgia and Louisiana in the South, and lost Alabama by fewer than 700 votes. Perhaps most surprising, Taylor came close to victory in Illinois, losing the state by just three percentage points. Taylor won Lincoln's congressional district by almost the same margin Lincoln had won it in 1846, proving that the congressman's anti-war stance had not been deadly to the Whigs generally. If it was a gratifying victory for Lincoln and other Whigs, it was also one that forecast trouble. As Michael Holt notes, Taylor's victory was less about Democrats abandoning their party than Democrats not showing up to the polls. In many states, Whig vote totals barely moved over Clay's near-miss four years earlier. In addition, Whigs made sharply different arguments for Taylor in the different regions, 
Where Lincoln and Seward stressed anti-slavery ideas in the North, Southern Whigs promised voters that Taylor would be a staunch defender of the institution. More ominously, some Whigs sounded more like Taylor men than Whigs. Alexander Stevens said, quote, The real Taylor men look upon the late, most glorious achievement as a public deliverance and not a party victory. A New Yorker said, quote, Old party issues have been totally swept away and a new order of things established under the influence of General Taylor, whose virtues and patriotism will adorn the brightest page in history. These tensions would build over the next year and quickly prove unmanageable. Abraham Lincoln thought Zachary Taylor would revive the Whig Party. But in securing the general's victory, Lincoln helped lay the groundwork for its destruction. Next time, we'll see Lincoln return to Congress and take his strongest stance against slavery to date. We'll also see him engulfed in a battle over patronage that would end the first part of his political career in defeat.